Welcome to First Generation Burden, a podcast dedicated to immigrants in the creative community. My name is Rich Tu, and I'm your host. This is episode 67, season 8, and we have a very special guest, Grammy-winning and Grammy-nominated DJ and recording artist Walshy Fire, who is part of the reggae-inspired group Major Laser. Their recent release, Music is the Weapon Reloaded, was just nominated for Best Dance and Electronic Album. So that's amazing. We recorded this right before the Grammy nomination, but we do talk about the album, so don't worry about that. We get into it. Also, we talk about how Walshy got his start in the music industry and quit his job at IBM to pursue his dream in music. We also talk about how he started as a dance and house DJ in New York City. A lot of talk about like the early music scene in New York. So that was a lot of fun. And also how Walshy worked his way up as a part of the Black Chinese sound system, ultimately joining up with Diplo and Ape Drums as a part of Major Laser. We also talk about the history of Chinese Jamaican migration and how Walshy Fire's identity informs his creativity. This is a great conversation. Really love this one. Really proud to give this one to you. And this is the third of four collaboration episodes with the OG Magazine. A written version of this interview will be in the issue, in their fourth issue. Link in the description. Also, don't forget to hit that subscribe button and drop a review. It makes a difference. So here we go. Without further ado, Grammy-nominated artist Walshy Fire on First Gen Burden. And we're recording now. Walshy Fire, thank you so much for joining us for this special First Gen Burden and the OG Magazine collaboration. You are a DJ, record producer, and a part of the dance hall and reggae influence group Major Laser with your partners Diplo and Ape Drums. Thank you so much for joining us, sir. This is, I can't wait for this conversation. Yeah, First Gen, right? I like that. Yeah, that's what's up. Uh, so could you start by just telling us a little bit about who you are and where you're from? You have an amazing background. I do want to ask some specific questions, but that's the question I start off with literally everybody. Yeah, man, definitely. I would encourage everybody to always Google uh, if they find the people interesting because we get asked that question a hundred million times. So we definitely have like extensive answers on that. Uh, but definitely I'm from Jamaica. I grew up in Miami, uh, played a sound system called Black Chinese, and now I am with Major Laser. And I do solo stuff, man, DJ, produce, uh, and throw events. I would love to uh, ask a little bit about Black Chinese, the group that you started out with, mm-hmm. but also um, the the term, it's Caribbean slang for uh, Chinese, uh, Jamaican, uh, the combined diasporas and uh, and the culture that comes out of it. Um, and you mm-hmm. are Chinese Jamaican. Can you tell us a little mm-hmm. bit about growing up with that experience and also uh, what that type of family and also community dynamic means to you? Yeah, absolutely. Where are you from? Where are your parents from? Oh, I'm from the Philippines. Okay. So, yeah, my parents came here in the 60s. Mm-hmm. I was born in Jersey. Okay. And I'm, I'm actually coming at you from Brooklyn right now. I don't know if you're... Nice. Yeah, I was there. I'm in, ja- I'm in Jamaica now. Mm-hmm. I'm in Jamaica. Yeah, man. Um, so, yeah. So, basically, uh, I'll try to make it, like, um, relatable to, like, a Filipino, right? So, um, the Philippines is a great um, place for this kind of reference as well. Anywhere in the world... Any place that you see certain industries, you're going to see a Filipino there. Um, you're going to see an Asian there. You're going to see a Jamaican there a lot of the time, too. When slavery was abolished and they started to bring over indentured servants from China and India into Jamaica, I think the difference between what I think the reason why this is such a wild concept, a, you know, Chinese Jamaicans for people not from certain places is because 
they're used to the American or the rest of the world version of a Chinese person when they leave China. So they're used to the Chinatown in Australia, in Canada, in America, where the Chinese people are very much doing their own thing. They definitely are supporting themselves. They're very community-based and you're not going to get too much from them. They're not going to give you too much, you know, and their kids would be the ones that kind of are more like, you know, doing the communicating and stuff like that. But even then they can be caught up in their own um, world and in their own culture and just be like, that's where I am. For some reason, when Chinese people got to Jamaica, Trinidad, Brazil, Panama, Cuba, the culture of these places was so insanely strong. Unlike America and Canada and Australia, where Chinese people got there and were like, you know, we're good. We're going to actually like kind of like build a wall and stay on our side and have our own community and do us. When they got to these places, they were like, I don't even know if I want to be Chinese anymore. They immediately become Jamaican, immediately become Brazilian, immediately become Trinidadian and Cuban and so on, you know? So I noticed that there's just certain places in the world where the swag of that culture was just so hot that they just couldn't manage. You know, so they end up being very much whatever it is. They end up having um, interracial um, babies immediately, you know, like they're not, they didn't wait for like their kids to do it. Like they did it, you know what I'm saying? Like they're just like, yeah, we're we're out of here. Yeah, no, totally. Um, We want to be a part of this. And so, yeah, that's what basically being Chinese Jamaican is, is that you end up with a look and an energy that might say China or there's some Chinese in there. Well, man, you're Jamaican as hell. That's what's up. You know, you're Jamaican, Jamaican. Man. So it's a very unique thing because you don't see it in uh, most of the world, only a handful of places. So I just love to hear a little bit about, um, you know, upbringing in music and the arts. I read somewhere that you quit your job at IBM. You used to work at IBM straight up nine to five. That's a fact. But then you gave that up to pursue DJing and pursue music. Can you, I would love to hear a little bit about your expectation from a familial standpoint, you know, mm-hmm. what you had to do, what your parents wanted of you, then how you mm-hmm. ended up going down your own creative path, because I think it's an amazing journey. Yeah, I think that's a great question for anyone out there with immigrant parents. You know that when you're first generation American, um, you're going to be the one pretty much lifting the entire family um, towards that American dream. Uh, I did that. I went to Clark Atlanta University like I should um, as a first gen um you know, going to college usually means you're the first in your entire family to go to college. And I was that. I was the first in my entire family to go to college. Uh, and I graduated and then I worked at IBM. So when I, um, I finessed that job at IBM because I got a marketing degree. What'd you actually do there? I got a, I got a marketing degree at Clark Atlanta University. But when I got to IBM, I was a sales specialist. I just remember finessing that interview so wickedly, man. I was just like on one that day. Um, but they ended up hiring me, got to Smyrna, Georgia, where IBM headquarters was. And it was, I think, 2,000 people in the building. And I believe there was six or seven not white people in the building, right? So you have about 2,000 people and it's only like seven of us. And we stuck together like glue, man. It was like, yo, anybody that their face looked a little different, it was like, yo, man, you want to you hang? You, wanna, you guys want to hang a little bit? 
and we hung, man. And we, um, we fought all the fights and I understood what corporate life was. And that was my first interaction with white people as well. Um, so I saw what being surrounded by white people was for the first time. I saw the same kind of savage in corporate life that I saw in ghetto life, um, growing up in Miami and in Carroll city. Um, you know, there's a level of savagery there that you're like, Oh man, um, if I could just get out of here, everyone else is happy and cheerful. And when I got to corporate world, it was savage, man. It was savage. How long White were people, you there for? One year, exactly one year. Like literally summer and then quit summer. And I quit because I got a call from a guy from Barbados who needed some help with things. And the IBM way was not to actually help. The IBM way, which I'm sure is the Apple way, which I'm sure is the everyone way, uh, was to lie to them, tell them that they needed a bunch of stuff that they didn't need and make commission off it. And I couldn't do that. He was from Barbados, man. I felt that connection. And so I ended up saving him like a hundred thousand dollars, something like that. For some $9,000 part, just shifted to him fixed. He ended up calling my boss and was like, man, this guy saved my company. He saved my life. He was the best thing ever. My boss pulled me into the office and she was like, yo, this is not what we do. We don't, we don't, we don't save companies. You should, you could have easily gotten a hundred thousand dollars out of this. And from that day, I just never felt the same. I had already been on this journey towards getting out of there, but that day it went on turbo. Yeah. And I think I quit like a month after, man. Um, and everybody at the job knew I was going to quit. I had started doing everything that said, I, I ain't, I'm not into this no more. Um, you know, like just dressing regular, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. Like the corporate acting out strategy. Yeah. 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 Corporate acting out, you know, totally like, you know, I'm a brat. I, I became a brat oh, yeah. in the corporate office where it's just like, yeah, not cleaning up my desk after I leave, you know, <laughs> that lunch, kind of a couple hours now. Um, yeah, casual every also, day. Yeah, it was straight cow. I'm wearing shorts, like, yo, it's like whatever. I'm like, I'm dressed for tennis, you know what I'm saying? So I definitely was um, given the signs that I was on the way out. Yeah, I had to quit, man. And so shout out to everybody doing corporate life, man. I know the struggle. I really do. And so what happened was, I guess, uh, while in Atlanta, I began to party a lot, lot, lot. And that's when I started to fall in love with nightlife and with looking at my favorite DJs. And, um, you know, I remember seeing uh, Jazzy Jeff and Kid Capri and uh, SNS and um, uh, all of the sound systems like Stone Love and Kilimanjaro and Bass Odyssey. And I just wanted to be a part of that. And I got into it, got into it. You know, one night, uh, one of the guys from a song called Changes was like, man, do you want to like just grab the microphone? You're always here. You're always around. Our MC didn't show up. And as soon as he handed me that microphone, man, that was it. And I was like, yeah, I'm definitely quitting my job. And I'm definitely going to try um, doing music. And that's exactly how it started. What was your level of expertise at the time? Were you, I mean, I don't know what year this was. It sounds like it was around like early aughts maybe. But yeah. were you were you into, I don't know, Serato or were you in Pro Tools? Oh, at the no, time? no, like, no. What was, the, what was your expertise Oh, no, at? no, no. I'm appreciative that you even think I'm that young man. I'm going to zoom my face in a little bit more so maybe you can see like the gray hair that's right here <laughs> and i'm gonna show you like i do use olive oil so maybe i got the skin on blast no, right now like i probably look really good for the listener like there's no video that that's gonna be attached to this but uh, i will vouch that the uh the skin routine the skincare routine on wall street fire is fire it's quite quite gleaming yeah quite gleaming so you know what i'm saying your boy is not as young as you think but uh i appreciate that man so no when i was uh starting it was vinyl uh, there was nothing else. Uh, and so I decided, yeah, I'm going to uh, take this DJ thing serious. And as anything else, 
when you decide to take it serious, the moment that you go, oh, I'm going to do this, uh, you move to the place where they do it. You want to be an actor, you move to LA. You want to fix cars, you move to Detroit. I wanted to be a DJ. I had to move to New York. So uh, 1999, I moved to New York and I started working at a place called Beach Street Records in downtown Brooklyn. And um, I met everybody in the industry through that job, man. And so shout out to Beach Street for giving me such a great opportunity. Shout out to DJ Culture for giving me such a great opportunity. Rest in peace, Daga Don, who introduced me to DJ Culture. It was such a great summer in New York City working at Beach Street. I had the time of my life. Uh, where were we spending at the time? Were you, you know, kind of going nowhere out of the... Oh, really? Nowhere, nowhere, nowhere. So in Brooklyn, I basically was practicing on the job. I was in Beach Street Records with Jade, um, Goldfinger, everybody there. And I was literally learning how to DJ while selling records. I was learning. I was learning. I was learning. It was a job for all honesty. I didn't, didn't really have um, a good rest. I didn't have like a resume that said I should be working at a record shop. I, what do you need really? I had a passion for music though. And I'm glad that culture saw that um, yeah. and was like, yo, because um, literally, man, I had just got to New York and um, Dago was like, yo, there's this guy. And I was like, yo, I need some money, but I want to do this. And he was like, yo, there's this guy named Culture. He's the manager of Beachy Records and he's DJing on the docks in Manhattan. We should go. Of course, we don't have any money. So we're finessing our way on this boat. Um, but I get a chance to meet um, Culture, who, by the way, played probably the most memorable set of my life ever, 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 because he played New York classics. And uh, coming from Miami and living in Atlanta, I didn't know what those were. Right. So I didn't know what thank you, Heavenly Father was. Um, I didn't know what um, hot music. I didn't know what that was. I didn't know what what alias um, follow me was. Yeah. Like um, old school dance house. Didn't know any of that yeah. stuff. Right. Yep. Um, keep rising to the top. Like he was crushing the place with these records. And I was just in absolute awe because I didn't know a single record. And every one of them was a reaction that that was bigger than. Um, I can even explain, you know, when I saw my, I saw my very first soul clap there, you know, the whole crowd and it was a big boat. So there was probably like a thousand people on this boat. And, uh, of course, you know, for everybody from, not from New York, the boat didn't actually go out in the water. Just be clear. This is what the docks are. <laughs> yeah. We're just, just hanging out. Literally just parked. Yeah. The boat, you just boat, you just get on the boat party and get off the boat. The boat doesn't go anywhere. I don't know the fuel cost of that would be, but they're not having it. <laughs> like, yeah, we're not going out there. They're not going to turn the boat on because that would just cost yes. so much money. Yeah, yeah, they're not turning the boat on. They just open the door yeah. and turn the AC on. All of those records, man. And I just remember being like, oh, this is where I need to be because those records felt amazing. Yeah. Um, and the reaction of the crowd. And then, yeah, I remember just saying, saying, hey, you know, Redago was like, hey, this is my boy. And him just being like, I guess he saw my, I just kept asking questions about every record, my, my passion. He was like, yo, just come on Monday, man. You got yeah. the job. Just come. And I was like, yo, I'm about to work in New York City. I never lived in New York City. I'd barely been to New York City. And there I am at one of the most influentially, most impactful record shops in the world, in the world, Beach Street Records. Literally that time, and I'm not that young either. So like that time, those vinyl stores, those record stores, those hip hop really driven stores, community culture stores, those kind of don't exist anymore. Like that era, 
Beat Street, of course, but also like Fat Beats, mm-hmm. even Scrapyard, mm-hmm. you know, downtown, like that whole scene. Even, you know, I used to party at this club called Vinyl, just get my dance on, mm-hmm. like on Mondays and Tuesday nights. I remember being there what, the night that Tito Puente died. Mm-hmm. It's like B-Boying and like, you know, seeing Ken Swift in the circle and stuff. Yeah. Whoa. It was a whole vibe. And yeah. really, if you didn't, if you weren't in the tri-state area experiencing that, kind of missed out on something, I think. Correct. 100%. I can't believe I was there. I can't believe I was there. It's kind of like when I listen to UK garage music and I realized, man, I missed out. I missed out. I listened to that and I'm like, they were having a blast. Um, I'm, I was there, man. I was able to go to the tunnel. I was able to go to all of these spots where hip hop was exploding and, um, um, house music was black and you were just like, yo, this is insane. And, um, you know, and the cross cultures of, uh, and also man, New York city was not a nice place at that time. Like I know, um, after nine 11, it, it definitely became a much different place, but you could still go to 42nd street and get, get sliced in the face. Um, they still had a lot pre-Disney. of porn, pre Disney, pre Eminem, uh, factory, you know, in 42nd street, you know, they still had a lot of the porn, uh, spots and the um and the booths and prostitution was still out there like crazy um and the train still had graffiti on it like 99 it was still like the last couple of years of of new york you know when you see like like latin kings on the on the thing and, and you're just like okay i need to get off this train you know that was kind of like energy the production the music the singers every night you went out it was fun 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 it was before bottle service before all of that it was dance floor dj yeah. And that was it. And I, I'm so glad I was able to partake in that. No, that's what's up. Well, you know, Limelight's a mall now. So that's a whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Nah, man. Yeah. I mean, things have to change. So we accept it and we work with it. No, very true. I'd love to ask, and, uh, when you started uh, professionally pursuing, when, you know, you're starting to get paid for residencies and also DJ gigs, what was your, what was your set sounding like? You just talked about, like, you know, hip hop, dance, mm-hmm. dance hall, and reggae, of course, as being like these, mm-hmm. these multicultural influences and also given mm-hmm. the time frame, What's your first few sets sounded like? Yeah, man. So I still wasn't getting any gigs in New York City. I wasn't feeling ready. I was able to get on the microphone, though, which means I was at Biltmore Ballroom, Starlight Ballroom, Flamingo Ballroom, Brooklyn Backyard Event, um, Basement parties, you know, real bashment. So that's why I would have been on the microphone. Um, I was collecting records at that point and I, I entered a DJ battle to, um, to win some turntables and I won, you know, like a scratching competition kind of thing. So I got my first turntables off of me. Like a DMC competition? Like a DMC competition, right. So it was a, a, a low level one, but I won and I got turntables. So now I have turntables, but winter came and I think. Um, me being Caribbean and from Miami, I could not do it. So I want to say like it hit like February, March, and I had been there from maybe May, April, May, hit like February, March. And I was like, nah, this isn't for human. And, um, so I decided to go to grad school in Tallahassee. So I went to FAMU and then after finishing grad school, I went back to Miami but in grad school, that's where I really began to DJ with my turntables, brought my turntables, used my records. Um, and but because it's in Florida, it's familiar. I know the records to play. So I can play records like Barry White, King Kong, uh, Barry White, Look at Her, Together Brothers, um, um, Dance to the Drummer's Beat, 
uh, let's fool around. I can't remember the name of that guy. I think it's Larry some. So in other words, New York had its classics, right? Miami had its own set of classics. Um, and I was already very familiar with them. I had already owned those records and now I could play them, um, you know, and, you know, the place go crazy along with the new records and stuff like that. So I ended up floating right to the top of Tallahassee as one of the best DJs there because I had been in New York and was able to play for the people that were uh, there from Chicago and DC and New York and everything like that. But I was also homegrown Miami. So I was able to get a bigger crowd. So I started a party every Friday called Mount Zion and it grew to like a thousand people. And in Tallahassee, a small town, a thousand people every Friday night is nothing, nothing to laugh at. Man. I mean, sure it was $5 at the door, but I'm in grad school a thousand people at five dollars at the door that's a lot of money every friday and i was very able to get i mean i was able to to reinvest in my um djing and then yeah after that's called left to miami and that's when i really started to take it serious um and that's when black chinese happened right after you know and i joined black chinese and it was dance hall dub plates sound clash all of that how long did did black chinese last for i mean 12 years man 12 years, 12 years, man. And then, so Black Chinese happens and then uh, Major Laser also happens. Kind of, there's a bit of an overlap. Yeah. Right. Black Chinese is still happening, buddy. Oh, it is still happening. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha, gotcha. How's the collective changed over time? Is it still the same oh, four groups? I mean, no. Super Dupes is producing. Bobby Chin lives in Belize. Willie Chin is producing. So it's younger guys. But, um, I mean, the, the whole industry is just not the same. Right. Um, I don't know if you saw the uh, uh, Super Cat um versus uh presentation with Wyclef playing uh, as Fuji sound that era of what he did is long gone uh, he basically was bringing back the big dub plate era on a stage that you rarely see it anymore but there was a time when that was very frequent so yeah man I met Diplo and he was very into Black Chinese he was always playing Black Chinese remixes very into everything he did and um yeah one day uh, his MC before me, Scarlet Boy, turned Christian and left him with like four shows that he needed to do. And he's like, yo, do you mind just doing some shows? And so, yeah, I stepped up. Uh, but in dead, just never turned to turn back. It was that ever since. Wow. So, you know, I was still playing Black Chinese at the time I was doing Major Laser. When you joined Major Laser, and my experience with Major Laser was it was such a, I feel a meteoric shift for me mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. where it felt like my childhood hip hop dance hall, like even just the, the animated aesthetic, all those references were somehow coming back into my life, mm -hmm. consuming music and culture. But like in my early twenties, mm -hmm. I'm curious to know how much you wanted to drive when you first joined and, and how, what was your influence and what was your um, input into the way major laser continued to live visually in animation right. in, in this music. Well, those guys had set up major laser pretty, pretty dope before I joined. Um, switching West, they both had uh, the white guys view of dance hall, uh, which as a Jamaican, I don't see. So I would say this probably happens in every culture, but for instance, the artwork as a Jamaican, I would have seen that millions of times. And therefore I would have been, I would have been dissent. It wouldn't be dope to me. It would just be normal. It'd be regular. While they look at it and go, yo, this artwork is insane. You know, this is insane. These artists, Jamaican artists are insane. 
I'm not putting that value to Jamaican artists because I'm Jamaican and I see them every day. And I'm so glad I was able to have them kind of like make me take a step back and look at the big picture and be like perspective perspective and be like, man, Jamaica is dope. Like look at the value, the wealth of every single thing. Our producers, our influence on the world is insane. This little rock in the ocean, you know? And so I definitely was like, I gotta take this value that I'm now seeing and seeing that these two white guys are making money off of and seeing that everyone else is looking at and going, man, I, I want to be a part of that. And I, I know I can make money off of it. And I know I can also add money and add value to it as, as um, Western Switch did as well. And be like the person who adds um, validity to it. Right. Yes. You know? And so now there's an actual Jamaican who's actually of the culture, actually knows where to source the, the dopest people, who to give the money to. I think added a lot of validity to what they were doing. I think that helped it grow because now anybody who's a little skeptical, like, mm, them two white boy, uh, come, you know, come down, come do this, da, da, da. They were like, oh, no, Walsy, yeah, man, Walsy, well, you are one. You know, Walsy, yeah. you're cool, man, everything good. All right, yeah, man, I get, I get some dope here, you know? And it was kind of like that. You speak a lot about the effect of positive music and why mm-hmm. that's so important to you. Is that something that, that you've always been about or is that something that, you know, with growth and maturity, you think you've landed on? Yes, 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 yes. Yeah, man, so of course I was into Luke, you know, Ain't Nothing But a Hoochie Mama and all of the records as a Miami person um, that I still love to this day. But I also have to acknowledge the detriment that it did. Um, you know, how many girls wanted to be a hoochie mama because it sounded good all of a sudden. A lot. In Miami, a lot. I'm sure throughout America, a lot. And so for me, I definitely can look back now and see like how songs about Black people killing other Black people actually make that happen. It manifests it. And I don't want to manifest these things. I don't want to manifest anything negative. So the music is positive so that it manifests positive things in the people of the life that are listening to it. You've also spoken a lot about the negative effects of colorism as well. I should really admire you for bringing up a lot of issues that I think are important, especially now in 2021. Mm, much respect. Yeah, absolutely. Um, something mm-hmm. that I've heard you say also is that God is a black woman mm-hmm. <laughs> and that message of self-worth and also knowing value so what's the spirit behind that? And of course, great question. Yeah, if you could just speak a little bit about that. Oh, I love this question, man. Thank you so much for this. Of course. All right. So basically, um, what I what I mean when I do when I say something like um, God is a black woman is I feel like I'm adding the balance to a Uchi mama, right? And so what happens is you end up having a lot of music and movies and TV shows that are so violent and so degrading towards black women that you don't have any balance. And I think that's all we want, right? It's just some balance. And so I'm going to go all the way then. Black woman is God. It makes a lot of people uncomfortable. It makes a lot of people uncomfortable. It even makes black women uncomfortable sometimes. But I look at my mom and I look at everything that I have read in the Bible when I was a Christian. I was a super Christian, by the way, at one point. And it all indicates that my own mother was that person. She was the person supplying me all of these things that God is supplying, that I'm getting from God. And so, you know, I don't believe at all on any level that um, I'm wrong in thinking that my mother is God. 
you know, um, my mother birthed me. She fed me. And yeah, she raised me in a way that helped me become just a great person in society. And so, yeah, man, I just realized like, yo, the things that these black women are going through and the struggles that they have are so, so, so insanely unique to just them. As a man, I get through life much easier. Um, as a white woman, she gets through life much easier. Black women have the hardest life. And I really think about like all of the things that were a part of my pandemic and my realization of what needs to change and my ability to help change it. And that's why I started to really say it a lot. Like, yeah, the black woman is, is God because I realized it hit. It hit ears, it hit chest. And that's what I want to do is I want to evoke an emotion. I want to touch a button. I want to do something that makes you feel like you should ask more questions and feel a little uncomfortable um, because I feel like I'm making good music and I feel like I'm making a change in a positive direction. I love that. You can edit that up any way you want, by the way. <laughs> I know that was long-winded. <laughs> no, there's, there's yeah, so man. much gold. If anything, this is a good format for uh, you. Yeah, man, respect. Um, I know we're coming up on time a little bit, but um, this is, wow, this has been a really fast, yeah, like 35 minutes. For the the last major laser album, I read that the title went back and forth between music as a weapon or it's going to be called laserism, but then y'all landed on music as a weapon and also that it was the final album. Can you speak a little bit about how y'all landed on the title? Yeah, I don't know where the final album thing came from. I think Wes might have said um, final album in a, so it's just a rumor. in a while. Totally. Um, but it was, yeah, I don't know why that, that became like a, a title. I mean, I guess that's what media does. They take something and and twist it, uh, but I don't know why that was. Well, I guess that's clickbait. Yeah, I guess it worked, and it worked. Um, but he definitely said, um, "In a while." That's definitely what he said. He's like, "Yeah, we're gonna. Everybody's gonna work on some solo stuff, and then um, probably next year we'll drop another album." Even though uh, we're still dropping EPs, like you know, we drop little EPs throughout. Um, but yeah, no, music was the what is the weapon is has always been the name of it. Um, the only reason why there was even a little flip flop was just because there was. A, a couple other names that were sounding good after we had already come up with that name. But after time, we realized that Music is a Weapon was just the best name after Pieces of Mission. And you heard it here first. Not the last album. More to come. Yeah, definitely not. Many, many more, actually. Like, too much music. Absolutely. couple last questions. Uh, how has the pandemic changed your approach to music? Has, has the soundscape within your own head, within your own world, changed in the past year and a half? And also, how are you looking forward to post this? Um... Yeah, pandemic, I would say it had to, right? But I don't think I can probably pinpoint a place, but I got a chance to dig into music on a level and really, um, really get in to, um, things like Ethiopian jazz and, uh, uh, um, American funk, like groups like 24 Karat Black, 24 Karat Black is the name of the group and groups like, uh, Brother and, uh, Brother Ah. But yeah, these are the groups that I believe, uh, I wouldn't have had a chance to really get it, get into if I didn't have the time and I began to, I stayed the whole pandemic in Jamaica. So I ended up walking up and down some hills and doing some things. Um, and in that, you know, uh, I was able to listen to music and discover music. And so uh, I think that that also put a lot of influence into what I was making. I started to make um, Afrobeat and dancehall a lot more smoother sounding, a lot more um, politically charged in the topics. Um, and I began to um, work on 
um, music that I just liked, much less trying to make a hit record kind of thing, you know? So that's definitely what the pa pandemic did was it made me really focus on making music that I liked that I know people like, you know, um, but it's just that, you know, when do you get a chance to, to listen to your own head sometimes? And that's what I did. You, it seems like you give a lot back, not just community, but also you, you have a strong focus on giving back to Africa specifically. What is your message, I would say, in terms of um, your desire to give back? What are the benefits of giving back and, and um, anything that you can help to put more, more of that energy into people's hearts? Like, why, why does that mean so much to you? Well, I think I can see myself in everybody, um, regardless of their class. Um, race and religion and therefore I have a very um, relatable compassion to everybody even if they're super ignorant I still can see myself in them and I can see their why they're that way and poor people black people are just who I'm around the most and they are the ones that I really feel like need the most and so I'm always trying to figure out how do I help? Um, you know, like we did a, uh, what name again? A, um, a, a concert um, for Puerto Rico when they had a hurricane uh, in Miami and we raised something like $800,000. Um, whenever Haiti's going through what it's going through, we're always trying to figure out a way to do something. Um, we are, and I am, you know, and I can so gladly say that the guys in Major Lazer are always on board with anything I'm doing um, in that space. Uh, but I feel like we are the group to do that. I feel like we have led that. I feel like the people expect it from us, gladly do. Um, and I want to deliver at all times. I want to be that person that's a spokesperson for the, for the Caribbean, a uh, spokesperson for Africa, a spokesperson for the African diaspora, a spokesperson for anyone poor, um, anyone who's gone through trauma, um, because I can relate on a level that I think most do not even understand. Um, I've done a couple IG lives where I've spoken about my life and people are blown away. They're blown away. They have no clue what I've been through, you know, and what I've seen and what I've done myself. I'm not an angel at all. And so, um, I make, I make, I make it clear. Um, that I'm there for them. And even though they might not know, the reason why I'm there for them is because I was them or am them. Um, I still make it clear that I am there for them. And I think they get that message and they look to me and say, man, all right, let's go, man. What, what can we do? You know, lead us. And so I proudly lead. I probably do everything I can and uh, I enjoy it. And I think that uh, it will have um, a very long life on, you know, wherever it lands, uh, as well as in the hearts of the people that it affects. I think they'll never forget. What are you looking forward to? What else you got coming out? You're a super busy dude. And I'm so appreciative of you making the time today. No, man. Blessed, man. Um, I got so much coming out, man. I got a lot of albums coming out. I want to do a dancehall album that's really sexy. Uh, I want to do another dancehall album that's a collaboration with another person that I won't name. Uh, I'm doing a Brazilian album, um, and I'll probably do another Abeng album, which is Afrobeats meets the Caribbean. Um, and then, of course, lots of music, Major Laser. I'm always dropping singles. I dropped a single today called Psycho with a DJ Furo and uh, Basie. Go check it out on my Instagram. 
But yeah, man, I'm always doing music and uh, just trying to get um, a lot of the songs that I created over the pandemic out as well. So I'm doing some jazz projects and some other things like that, man. Just, just, just follow me. Stay in tune. I'm always dropping something. Wall Street Fire, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been a great conversation. Yeah, man. Also, make sure all listeners check out Wall Street's new single, Psycho, on his Instagram, Wall Street Fire. Any, anywhere else our listeners can find you? You're pretty much all over the place. Yeah, man, just at Wall Street Fire, my daddy. Appreciate you, brother. Thank you so much. Much respect, man. Yeah, man. That was a great conversation. Shout out to Wall Street Fire and also shout out to Major Laser for their recent Grammy nomination. Thanks to everyone for listening. You can find the First Generation Burn podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, wherever you get your podcast content. Please rate us and drop a review. It helps spread the good word. Go to firstgenburden.com for all the interviews, all the episodes. On Instagram, we're at firstgenburden. You can find me, your host, at rich underscore to you. Check out the OG magazine. Link in the description. Also check out Mini Cooper Collab, link in the description. Thanks to the Desgen team for their support. Thanks to you, the listener, and be safe, everyone.